Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I'm Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights of free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Hiram Chodosh, the president of Claremont McKenna College. A lawyer by training, he previously served as dean of the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. In 2013, he became the fifth president of Claremont McKenna. In 2019, McKenna College was the recipient of the Institutional Excellence Award from the Heterodox Academy. And for the past two years, Claremont McKenna was the top ranked uh, school in the college free speech rankings compiled by the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE. Hiram, welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast. Thanks, Keith, happy to be here. Um, I wanna get your perspective on academic freedom given your experience as a dean and a university president, Um, but let me start um, by a fact that actually did take me back a bit um, as I was looking at your biography, uh, which is you're only the fifth president of Claremont McKenna University. And so when you're a place like Princeton University, there's been quite a few more than that. and I imagine that that, um, uh, that that there are unique features that come along with being the president of such a relatively uh, young institution. Um, so are there unusual dynamics to running a college that's relatively new? Yes, there are. And a lot of our alumni and trustees might tell you that there have been five, but really four, because one had a very short term during the Vietnam War. Uh, the college has been blessed with uh, presidents who've been so committed to the mission that they've stayed long enough to get something done. Right. And I think the key thing to note in first, in first blush is that the college was founded in 46 by veterans coming back from the war who had a, yeah. a new idea about a liberal arts college dedicated to political economy, but also one dedicated to put students out into the world. And if you think about the dreams deferred of that generation, the work deferred, the education deferred, and they were lining up at this scrappy new college in, you know, the middle of a grove with some (laughs) rocks around it and Pomona to its south and Scripps to its north uh, to really get back to work, to build the body politic, to build the economy. And that sense of commitment to fundamental values, that sense of hope and aspiration to, in the words of one of our uh, great observers to be somebody, to be something, I I think has put the college on a very steep trajectory, a very entrepreneurial one, a very ambitious, if not audacious one. And in many ways, uh, all of our peers are at least a century older than we are. So we always feel like we have a lot of catching up to do. And I think in a higher ed context, that's a huge advantage. Uh, because we know that in most of higher ed, many people do this year what they do this year because they did it last year. And there's a benefit to that 
set of, of conservative cycles, right? Because we, you know, we have certain variables in place and we build on that and we innovate on top of that platform. But I think it's helpful when you look at yourself and don't think back, but you draw on the inspiration of your founding to only think forward. Yeah. And uh, I've been asking our alums, we're in our 75th anniversary this year, what's the most important year in the college's history? And I expected them to say 2046 or, yeah. uh, not, or, or I'm sorry, tw- uh, I expected them to say 1946 or uh, the year of coeducation uh, when it started in 1976, or I expected them maybe to say 2046 or centennial year. That's my second favorite answer. <laughs> but most of them say this year, Hiram this is the critical year. And uh, I really, I love that response because we are not only returning uh, in a pandemic, but we're leaping forward in many key respects. Yeah. Uh, Clement McKenna is an even more unusual situation. Not only is it relatively young, but it's also part of a cluster of seven Claremont colleges. You just mentioned uh, Scripps and Pomona, uh, for example. Can you say just a bit about that arrangement and what the challenges are that it might pose um, to run one of seven institutions? <laughs> uh, well, you're right. It's a very unique institutional setup. It was built on an Oxford-Cambridge model for the Western United States and the so-called group plan. Uh, I would say very plainly that none of the colleges would be anywhere near what it is without the others. It's like a redwood forest. Uh, as we grow, we're built on a very light substructure of roots but we can grow high in mutual support. And it's allowed uh, some of us to really focus on core strengths and not have to be A to Z uh, and do things only sort of halfway because we have a Noah's Ark approach to education. Right. So there've been huge advantages of this setup. It is, however, very difficult uh, because there is no one in charge. And it requires a certain kind of collaborative leadership in a flat structure to make it all work. Sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes it is mind-numbingly challenging just because we all have a shared history and a shared set of values and commitments to liberal arts, but we also have different ways of going about things. And you can imagine it as a family of very independently minded smart people who uh, don't just want to do what one another is doing all the time and who want to collaborate, but also want to see that we're each doing things in our own, in the execution of our own sovereignty right? and our enlightened self-interest and doing things that really leverage the collaborative and uh, in the search, in the search for excellence and making the kinds of contributions to the broader society that we each seek to make. Yeah, so I mentioned in the opening the Heterodox Academy Award, um, which particularly recognized you and Claremont McKenna for the creation of the Open Academy um, on campus. Um, can you say something about what that is um, and and how it came about in the first place? Sure. I, as you know, you know back. I mean, the reason for your work and you know the driver of the podcast is obviously because we've been having a, a number of controversies in higher education. I would say. Um, that many of them have centered on speakers, on invited speakers or disinvited speakers. And during the year of 1718, but even before that, uh, I would say going back to 15, 16, I started to think about that more critically. 
Um, we do a lot more than just invite speakers. And our educational commitments have to be far broader and deeper than which speakers we invite. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. I think people think that we speak through our speakers or that our speakers represent us. I, I think that's a very important distinction that we have to hold on to. But my point here is I grew frustrated with the narrow conception of the role of freedom of expression and academic freedom as merely a question of whether a speaker has a right to be on campus, which looks very different in a public than a private university. Uh, no one has a right to speak here unless invited. And however, and, th and those issues are serious and we've worked really hard at them. Uh, we have a program that goes back decades called the Athenaeum. We have every night of the week four we have a distinguished uh, speaker. It's not just a lecture, it's a social experience. Uh, it's extremely student-centric. Only students sit with the speaker, not me, not a donor, not a trustee. Speakers intro are introduced only by students, by the Ath Fellows. The Ath Fellows coordinate and facilitate the Q&A. Students get priority over all questions. You've been there yourself, Keith, yeah, and I've yeah. experienced it. It's a very special institution for us. So speakers are important to us. And I think we have the richest, most diverse array of speakers on any college campus and the ability to bring 125 people for dinner every night of the academic year. It's nothing short of phenomenal. We're very proud of it, but it's only one leg of the stool. And I started to become very frustrated with the discussion around freedom of speech, because a lot of it, understandably, created only a vertical conception of the role of an institution. So, you know, uh, that's understandable. The First Amendment starts, Congress shall make no law. Yeah. It's about vertical relationships between the state and the society. It's understandable that we would cast upon higher ed that same sort of relationship. It's about institutional intervention or not when there's a controversy or a controversial speaker. Okay, but that's not why we're all here. I mean, we're not all here just to express ourselves. We're here to learn. And learning is, if we imagined a learning environment where everyone could just speak all the time, regardless of time, place, manner, regardless of anyone else speaking at the same time, that would be not just a tower of Babel, that would be a nightmare. Yeah. That wouldn't be an educational environment any of us would choose to design. So what else is going on? What are the other major components that we need? Well, we speak in order to persuade. And that means that someone has a different viewpoint than us. And unless we are open to other viewpoints with whom we disagree, we can't expect others to listen to us. So now all of a sudden there's a horizontal reciprocal commitment to viewpoint diversity, to viewpoint experience, uh, personal experience, identity, yeah. but to recognize that in a pluralistic society, especially a democracy like ours, if we are not open, actively listening, and that means asking questions, not just sitting yeah. back with our ears open. If we're not committed to that enterprise, we fail to learn. We're not, even if we don't want to be persuaded, we're certainly not rendering ourselves more effective in our own positions because we're not deepening our own positions in response to the challenges that people are casting at us. Right. And this is a really, uh, a really 
important commitment. In fact, one of our Athenaeum fellows put it best when she said uh, a couple years ago, all the individuals I admire and respect are the first to acknowledge that theirs is not the final word. They are constantly seeking out information that disproves their opinion. Because if they are wrong, they don't want to be wrong for a minute longer. And that's from one of our students. Yeah. And so the second commitment of Open Academy is really to embrace differences of viewpoint, viewpoint diversity. But that's not enough. And so freedom of speech is not enough. Viewpoint diversity is not enough. And this is where I differ with Heterodox Academy in some respect. If you look at the teleology of Heterodox Academy, the mission statement, it basically boils down to having better arguments or disagreeing better or more constructively. Again, I don't know about you, Keith, but I wasn't put on the earth to just disagree better. Right. I, I grew up in a family in which it was a blood sport around the kitchen table, but that wasn't the purpose of it, just to form a better argument. It was actually to persuade or to understand something with humility about where we're wrong or to reach some underlying common understanding or new framework that could reconcile these views or to solve a complex problem across controversial lines, especially in our country. Isn't that what we seek to build in our polity, in our, in our civic, civic society, in our, in our, in our communities, in our families? Um, and if you think about it, you know, this is a big social challenge that we have in the United States. I mean, every Thanksgiving, there's another piece about uh, whether a family is going to invite uncle such and such because uncle such and such is of the other party. And either they're going to invite him and then say, we can't talk politics tonight, or they're going to exclude him. And both of those choices violate both principles of freedom of expression and full inclusion. Right. Because if politics is off the table, it means that there's a part of ourselves that we're not expressing, which means we're excluding a part of ourselves at that table. And certainly if we're, you know, disinviting or not inviting an yeah. uncle, that's hardly inclusive and really doesn't fully exercise our free speech. So we wanted to build a series of programmatic contributions, compliments, and some mm -hmm. new programs that would reinforce these educational commitments, not just principles or policies, not just institutional interventions where there's conflict, but actually build in the community a learning resilience around controversy and conflict. And so what did we do? We, we reinforced things that were already strong at the college, so new types of resources and programming going into the Athenaeum, uh, new resources to this wonderful podcast team that they have, Free Food for Thought. Mm -hmm. But we also drew on our care center, which is really about learning across differences to build dialogue training, dialogue training at orientation, dialogue training in our student leadership. And we run simulations of controversies so that they have the tools to resolve them without an administrator having to get involved. Yeah. Um, and then we started to think about how we could build out peer support for this through our Model UN program. Our Model UN program has won four out of five world championships. And 
are great ambassadors for the skill set that we want all students to have, uh, and many other programs that are meant pervasively to support this in the classroom, in the co-curricular and extracurricular spaces, including co-teaching and guest teaching to be more intentional about having different viewpoints yeah. over the same material. Um, yeah, I mentioned the five free speech rankings, um, which are based on a climate survey of, of students on well over a hundred uh, different college campuses at this point. And it asks quite a few different kinds of questions, which then aggregates into sort of an overall um, score for individual uh, uh, colleges. And part of what's striking about um, Claremont's performance in the rankings, besides the fact that it's been uh, first uh, for the, the last two years that they've uh, done this ranking system, um, is that it's so good across the board um, that, that across all these different dimensions that Fire is asking about, uh, Claremont um, does, does quite well uh, from that perspective. And um, some of those aspects seem like they would sort of be under your control, such as questions about how clear is it the administration will protect free speech on campus. Um, others seem much harder to control uh, from a president's perspective. So how comfortable students are expressing themselves um, on campus or expressing an unpopular idea to fellow students on social media um, or something like that. And, and the uh, Claremont students seem uh, uh, more at least comfortable with that than, than a lot of um, students on a lot of other campuses. Well, there's always room for improvement, uh, even, even, at, even at Claremont. Um, to what extent are you just getting lucky? And to what extent is it um, uh, initiatives like the Open Academy that you think are actually helping uh, your university environment? Is it something else um, that's creating this kind of uh, background set of conditions that students uh, seem to feel reasonably comfortable expressing themselves um, across a, a wide range of um, uh, kinds of controversial topics that come up? Yeah, well, we, we do have the benefit of history and culture. so. Mm -hmm. These are not new developments for us. What's new are some of the cultural and intellectual forces and headwinds that work against these principles. And so in, in some ways, because we've had, I think a greater deal of political diversity and uh, in some ways a very strong commitment to these principles, both, both as a matter of academic work of our faculty, but also as a matter of culture within our student body, I think that we're starting from a stronger point. And that's, that's very important to understand uh, because culture is a funny thing. It's, it's hard to move it and it's easy to lose it. Yeah. Uh, so having said that though, you're right that there's some things that are obviously within our control. And those things in academic leadership, there's, there's a, tr a tremendous amount to be said for clarity, for uh, making hard decisions, uh, that are that are clear about where the institution stands, and and we've done our our very best to do that, and I think that that has been absorbed by our community. They know where we stand on these issues. I also think that uh, we have tried to program this into the culture in a couple of ways. So, for example, what we found, uh, without being too deliberate about it, is that a lot of our applicants are seeing this and then in some ways self-selecting. So for example, if, if you're, you know, all else being able, equal applicants A and B and one likes to step across a barrier right. and the other does not, uh, you're, 
we're much more likely to recruit that first student than the second one because they're going to they're going to pick up this sense when they see what we're doing. That becomes a bit self fulfilling. Mm-hmm. So again, there's no absolutes here. There no there's no perfection here. It's a constant work in progress. But sure. I think that as we project these values out as part of our environment, against the context in which yes, there are students obviously nationally, this age group who push back against this, but there are also those who are freed, liberated, empowered by it. And what we found when sometimes things get a little tough or some of the communities around us are, don't like what we're doing, you know, whether it's our our speakers are too conservative for liberals or too liberal for conservatives, is what I find in our student body is many of them take great pride in being in that space with us. Yeah. And they see the importance of it. And they feel themselves empowered by the strength of being able to take on uh, people and experts and big world thinkers whose ideas they disagree with. Right. And that's in a world in which I think, sadly, we've done such a bad job with civics generally that our students come into college and don't really understand how institutions work. So without that understanding, they have, if they want to make change, they have two tools, petition or protest. Right. And there's nothing wrong with petition or protest, but if they're not joined with other types of institutional change strategies, they can seem very weak or hollow. Right. Right. And it's really important that we're, you know, we're doing what we can to mature that sense of how institutions work, how, you know, instead of students just being frustrated by the world, that they create structures that compete with the world structures that they're inheriting. And so I do think that there are a number of things culturally and community-wide that we do that also reinforce these principles. Now, you know, we're in a, a terribly challenging period with COVID because we weren't allowed to be on campus for 18 months. And we feel like we've lost a lot of that continuity and are constantly trying to figure out how do we re-socialize it Mm -hmm. and build up that social capital. So it's not that we're without challenges. We have the same cultural, intellectual challenges that any other institution in the society has. Right. But I think there's a difference between just laying back and being subject to it and actually trying to turn this national vulnerability mm-hmm. into a core strength from an educational point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing you highlighted while ago was the, um, uh, which certainly is very true of sort of thinking about these uh, campus free speech controversies in general, people are very focused on the kinds of things that get a lot of media attention. That's often outside speakers, or at least for a while there, it seemed to be a lot of uh, outside speakers who are particularly provocative and uh, tended to generate uh, controversy. It's often focused on sort of campus activists and students um, um, uh, opposing speakers um, and, the, and the like. Um, but especially from an academic freedom perspective, a core of what um, is of concern is not only sort of what does that kind of speech activity on campus Campus look like, um, but also uh, what kind of scholarship can people engage in? Was classroom teaching look like, and how free do people feel in those kinds of context? Um, when you think about sort of the overall speech environment, where we're thinking about these sort of different components of what universities are doing 
partially this kind of public free speech kind of environment of, of outside speakers, but partially sort of teaching and scholarship and sort of core academic features of a university. What do you think the overall climate looks like at this point? Is it um, in relatively good shape? Um, are we having real problems or are the problems sort of limited or how should we think about sort of where we are these days? It's a hard thing, I think, for us to get our minds wrapped around. You know, it, it's sort of like the questions of what are, what are people in the United States really feeling and thinking? <laughs> How do we get our mind wrapped around that when, you know, we know that there's a kind of, you know, th that, for example, the people, the small number of people who watch cable news yeah. on both sides of the political spectrum have far more contempt for one another than people who don't. And there's a kind of countervailing narrative of people who actually go out and talk to people in small towns and libraries that this sense of hostility and dehumanization of the other side doesn't, doesn't really exist in such large numbers, that it's a, it's a more nuanced story than that. And I think we have the same problem with higher ed because we're looking at the anecdotes, we're looking at, you know, the the pathologies, and what does it tell us about the overall health? Now, what, what I would say, having qualified it, is that I, I'm deeply concerned about the loss of a belief in the art and science of contention, yeah. and that I'm very concerned about the uh, intellectual tendencies towards conclusion in search of evidence, uh, towards signal effect instead of discussion, towards um, people trying to, you know, kind of figure out what side they're on before they've actually asked a neutral question. Yeah. And, and I, I just use this as, as, as one example of what I'm talking about. In discussions with K through 12 educators about this, one of the things that struck me is that it is very rare in K through 12 education for people to focus on the question of what is a good question? What are the characteristics of a good question? I'm always inspired by uh, Izzy Robbie's story, the, the great Nobel laureate uh, in physics, 1946, who accredited his success to his parents and told the story about how when he came home from school every day, his parents asked him, Izzy, did you ask a good question today? That, that emphasis on the question, on our curiosity is at the, at the core of all learning. And I was just on the, a meeting with some students who were having you know, some conflict over some issues. And I was like, you know, I mean, you guys can always, just, I'm a click away. All you have to do is just ask the question. And if you ask the question, you find out something that maybe you didn't know, or that clears up something right. that you projected. We all do it. We all do it. And with my team, with students, with everyone, I'm always like, let's get the facts. Let's yeah. get the facts. And then we can draw our conclusions. Similar key to research that, you know, uh, is conclusions in search of evidence. That's not really research. If we know what the end result is, we're probably not inquiring critically. Right. And I think that commitment is weak. Yeah. I think culturally weak, intellectually weak. Um, we have 
whether it's, you know, uh, the advent of social media and the algorithms and the way they amplify certain types of speech over others, whether it's our academic celebrity culture, where there are just too many people in the academic world who are looking for clicks and sales and, you know, sharp, provocative statements over the kinds of engaged, hard, rigorous inquiry that we, we, we not only do in academia, but we want right. our, our, our communities to do when confronted with the really big questions of our time or the very big questions in their lives. Right. And I do think we have a lot of work to do, you know, prenatal the grave on how we reinforce basic learning objectives for the society that we have just taken for granted and we're really actually focusing on almost everything but. Yeah. And so the whole foundation of education and learning in particular in society, uh, I think we have a lot of work to do to sustain everything that we seek to do in this country. Yeah, so, so one thing that's very different from being in a president's office as opposed to a faculty office is that you see a lot more stakeholders in the university right. uh, than, uh, than most of us do. Um, and I have a better sense then about sort of what the challenges are of sort of managing expectations. How are they approaching the university and thinking about the university environment um, in general? Um, so what's your sense, um, uh, for example, thinking about alumni and trustees as to um, how much do they actively want a robust intellectual environment on campus? To what degree do they understand concepts like academic freedom? And to what degree is that have to, uh, do they have to really be educated about sort of what the contours of the academic process looks like um, and what it is professors um, are, are doing and, and what might be valuable about what professors um, are doing? Is that a natural sell to them? Um, or do you find that sort of an uphill battle uh, trying to uh, explain to people what all these uh, crazy professors are doing? Yeah. So there, there are two answers to this question. The one, the first is more positive, which is, I think that at least in our context, the, the alumni and our board and other prominent people who are involved in our community, almost without fail, have a story about a really challenging educational experience that they had that changed their lives. Yeah. And I can tell you many of them. I, you know, one of our, you know, our, some of our great business people, you know, tell me stories about when they failed the class, when they got a D on their thesis. Uh, and also sometimes in context where, you know, a very conservative student was taking a, uh, you know, a class from a very liberal teacher or a very liberal student taking a class from a very conservative teacher, or just the demands, the rigor of academic life as transformational of them and what they were able to accomplish having gone through that experience. So that's the positive part of the story, which is I think you have to draw out the stories in people that are part of their experience to reflect back to them how important this is. Yeah. The second part of the story is more critical. And that is that, again, against the context of the culture wars, the cable news, the media, the focus on these 
sort of controversies in ways that aren't always so factually based or thoughtful, uh, people get very agitated. Yeah. They get very agitated. How could you have this speaker? How is it that you have a professor that said this? How is it that you have a student who retweeted this thing? And the difficulty there is to try to differentiate the institution as such from those within it who have the freedom to say with, within certain legal, uh, important legal sure. restrictions, what they want. And that's a challenge because sometimes people see the institution itself according to a political spectrum. Yeah. I don't, I don't like my college anymore because it's gotten to this or that. Okay. So that's a real challenge. My approach to it was a few years ago, I was, I, I thought a lot about this because over the years, you know, we, as presidents, we come under a lot of pressure to make expressive statements. Yeah. And expressive statements on educational values, even educational policy, as long as they're about the policy, not about, you know, some group or political movement or some leader are, I think that's all within range. That's fair range. That's something that we should be outspoken about. But I noticed that uh, there was this kind of almost paternalistic tendency that people wanted presidents to chime in on every national controversy and to have an opinion and to sign a petition and sign a letter. And I found that very frustrating because, first of all, I mean, there might be parts of these letters and petitions that I agree with and other parts that I disagree with. And I don't want to be put in a box. Right. But more importantly, I don't think it's my role. And in fact, not only my role, not my role, but when I perform, when I allow myself to get down that road, I think I undermine the educational enterprise for my institution because all of a sudden people then ascribe to the institution my own values and beliefs or political views. And then there's, even though I might say, well, these are, I'm not representing the views of the institution, there's that equivalence to me. And then if people disagree with me, they feel like they're on the margins and they can't say what they want and they might be punished or who knows what they might project into that. So what I did is I wrote up something called, that we call the nonpartisanship uh, policy. Now, a lot of uh, universities have statements of nonpartisanship, but what do they mean? They just say, we're nonpartisan. So I sat down a few years ago to write this up. And I wasn't exactly sure where it was going to lead me, but I basically came up with a First Amendment framework for it. And the idea was that I was going to constrain myself and my VPs so that everybody else could express themselves freely. Right. But if I also gave to myself that right of free expression on political matters, I would actually undermine the freedom that others had to express themselves. And so as the key voice of the institution, it's important that I am nonpartisan. Now, these are not self-interpreting principles. (laughs) It's like freedom of speech is not a self-interpreting principle. And I wanted to set that framework to say, of course, on matters of learning and education and student development and higher ed, Mm -hmm. yeah, we're, we're free to say what we want. But on other matters, not to disconnect them, but to say that on other matters, as soon as I 
chime in on the major issues of our day, all of a sudden there are people in our community who are going to feel like they're not valued, their views aren't valued, and that's not good for education. Right, right, right. Um, so let me just ask one one last question to sort of wrap up and, and I guess draw on the, those same kind of considerations, which is trying to think about sort of how you think about what's in the best interest of the university and how do you communicate that to other people? Um, so the University of Florida now, for example, is currently struggling with uh, this conflict of interest policy they've developed about outside activities by faculty that led them to tell some faculty that they um, couldn't uh, serve as expert witnesses in a lawsuit against the state because they thought that was a conflict with the interest of the university ultimately um, because the university's interests are tied up with the interest of the kind of conflict, but it's easy to imagine these kind of things playing out in lots of other situations as well. We've certainly seen examples of um, instances in which big donors, for example, are putting pressure on a university saying that faculty member is just so out there, I can't support the university anymore um, if, if they're going to continue to behave the way they're uh, behaving. There are occasions when you find yourself having to worry about, are you going to scare off students and the enrollments are going to go down uh, because of some controversy um, that's arisen on campus. How do you uh, manage those kinds of institutional risks um, in that sense? Um, uh, one way you've managed it is, is to adopt that kind of nonpartisan statement view where you, so it's easier to be able to say, um, look, these individuals who are speaking out are speaking for themselves. They don't speak for the institution. Nobody's speaking for the institution. Um, uh, that's not what we're doing here. Um, and that's an interesting angle on how do you sort of manage some of those um, uh, risks. Um, how do you think about this more, more comprehensively about how do you convey to others what's in the best interest of the university? How do you think yourself about the relationship between these individual conflicts and how do you uh, keep the entire institution afloat? Yeah, so... Few things I, I mentioned get the facts first. Yeah. That's essential. I, I mean, if we tell the truth about what's actually happening, I think we have a solid foundation because a lot of times people don't understand what's happened and they project in. Yeah. And there are times where we can't say exactly what the facts are for other legal reasons sure. of privacy. And that there's an art around that. Sometimes you have to wait, sometimes you're still constrained. And you can say only what you can say. So that there's a kind of asymmetry there that's yeah. very challenging. In addition to get the facts, the second thing is get the policies. Right. So, for example, my question in the case of Florida is what what were their policies on extracurricular activities? I mean, almost every university I've been in has a policy on what you can do on the outside. Right. And that you're free to do those things on the outside as long as you're not, you know, working five days a week. Uh, for some other body. I mean, I think for the folks in Florida who think it's okay uh, to restrict this, they should turn the politics around a bit. Yeah. You know, they should ask themselves, what if we were in a really liberal state that believed in expansion of voting methods and we had faculty who were opposed to it? Would we feel the same way about supporting their right to go off and oppose it? Because yeah. I, I believe in the reflexive nature of our commitments, right? Like how reflexive are we thinking about them? So my test for any principle is what are we willing to give up for it? Or in this kind of context, are we willing to turn that around in a way where we can answer the question where we're supporting freedom of, uh, of speech or expression where it's most obnoxious to us? So that's the first test. Yeah. And I try to, I think that's a way of 
dealing with this is to turn that reflexive mirror around and see how far you can get with it. The third thing with donors is to comment that, and again, this goes to policy and law. Yeah. If donors uh, start to, um, to gain the pretense of making these decisions for institutions, they undermine their donations yeah. because the law says it has to be a matter of indifferent generosity. And finally, if you can't see eye to eye with a donor, you can't see eye to eye with a donor. I think in some ways, uh, most donors respect that. And those that don't, you probably maybe don't wanna have as donors anyways. Right. So I think if you're truthful, you're focused on principle and policy, you're reflexive in your commitments, and you can show that these aren't just one-sided commitments, that they you can withstand the heat and the pressure from the other side and point out what the proper role of everybody is in the institution, uh, I think that you can make a tremendous amount of progress there by just being super clear, but also listening, being empathic to these various collisions of viewpoint. And the last thing, Keith, is just finding that even temperament to cast through the kind of reverberating uh, lobs of grenades and conflicts that are so corrosive, again, of the academic atmosphere. It, you, you can't have openness in hostile territory. Right. And that's something that we have to do a much better job at protecting. And it, it comes from both ends. It's not just the hostilities that come in from the outside, it's our own resilience of working through them with self-confidence. There are many times where, uh, you know, in the issue of speakers or professors where uh, people on the outside have an absolutely infantilizing attitude towards students. Well, just just because, uh, you know, a student uh, studies Marxism doesn't make the student a Marxist. Um, you know, just because the student reads, um, you know, some sort of uh, literature coming out of Nazi Germany doesn't make the student a Nazi. Right. Um, and we need to develop, this, is, this goes back to the educational core of making sure that we're building that intellectual and social strength and capability and commitment where okay, I, I heard a viewpoint that I thought was obnoxious, offensive, wrong, dangerous, but I didn't have to exclude that viewpoint from the comments just because I was scared of it or it was too hurtful to me. I've learned somehow to work through that. And I know that's easy for some of us to say in some instances and harder for other people to accept in others. It's not like there's sure. complete equivalence there, but I think we have to grow that strength in ourselves to be able to withstand those pressures. Great, uh, thanks. I really appreciate your uh, engaging in this conversation. It's always very helpful to hear a perspective of somebody who's uh, been in your shoes having to deal with these, these problems. It's uh, hard for people on the outside to get a real sense of it. And so I appreciate your helping uh, walk through some of it. Uh, thank you for joining us um, and listening to uh, the podcast. Uh, please subscribe to the Academic Freedom Podcast through your favorite platform so that you don't miss an episode and rate us on iTunes, which helps others find our conversations on campus free speech and academic freedom. 
Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.